Our friends, we turn now to uh, Romans and chapter 5. We'll take up the reading from verse 15. Romans chapter 5 and at verse 15. But not as the offence, so also is the free gift. For if through the offence of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offences unto justification. For if by one man's offence death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offence of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offence might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And particularly the words there in verse 19. By the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Now, we came last week to consider the nature of the atonement. What kind of provision then is this for us? What is the nature of this thing that we call the atonement? And the short answer to that was a vicarious or a substitutionary atonement. The atonement that we have is the kind of atonement where a great representative performs it on our behalf and for us. It is a substitutionary atonement. And that is, at the very heart, it is fundamental to the nature of the atonement. And it is in harmony with our understanding of the way God relates to man by covenant. So it is a substitutionary atonement by its nature. Jesus does it. He does it for us as our substitute. So Jesus does it for us. But what is the it that Jesus does? We now know he does it. We know that he does it for us on our behalf as the one standing in for us, a substitute But what is the it that Jesus does for us as our substitute? And that is our question tonight. 
And we are still in the realm then because of that question of the nature of the atonement. And we can add to what we have said last week of it is that the nature of the atonement is substitutionary. And we can say our substitute, what does he do? He substitutes his obedience for ours, our disobedience. He substitutes his obedience for ours. That is the answer to what is the it that Jesus does to make atonement for us. He obeys for us. That is, if you like, getting down to the nuts and bolts of the atonement. What is actually performed in it? Because who is doing it? It's not us. We can't. But it is demanded of us. Therefore, we must have a representative. And our representative must be able to stand in for us at all points as a substitute. But what then does he do? Not just who, but what he obeys. And so we are faced this evening with considering the obedience of Christ as an answer, the answer to what is the atonement made up of. Or with. And we have four points this evening. Who this obedience is rendered to. Who this obedience is rendered for. What is meant by his active obedience. And what is meant by his passive obedience. We'll try to deal with the first two quite briefly because... They need to detain us long. We have dealt with them in different ways at different times already. But the third and fourth points will be then, I suppose, the the particular emphasis of our consideration and study this evening. So first of all then, who this obedience is rendered to. Now you remember we have said before, it's an objective atonement. It is Godward. And so the heart of the actual accomplishment of it, that is the obedience of Christ, likewise is Godward. It is to God. Who is it rendered to? The obedience of Christ is rendered to God. He does it as our substitute. And that necessitates it because if he's doing it in our place, then we could ask just as easily ask the question to whom do we owe our obedience though we cannot pay it? And we know the answer to that question is God. And therefore if someone's going to do that for us well it is still to be done to God. No matter who the substitute is it is a Godward obedience. But for the full appearance of righteousness, as it were, the scriptures lay particular emphasis not on Christ rendering obedience to himself as God, the second person, but to him rendering obedience to God the Father, representing the Godhead. 
And so we can think of very well-known parts of the Bible and they're well-known for a good reason because they're so precious to Christians. Isaiah 53, which speaks of my righteous servant. Verse 11, he shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. He's bearing their iniquities, but he is serving me. He is my servant. He is under my law. And so it is the fulfilling of this service to his father that Christ completes this obedience that is in our text by the obedience of one it is an obedience to his father because that's the law he's under he's under the law of God he's under the law that we have broken and so the whole of the life of Christ on earth is considered as this life of constant flawless obedience to God And that is an important part of our atonement. We're going to come to the, what we call the passive obedience of Christ, particularly think of the sufferings of Christ and his death. And that comes to mind more commonly when we think of the atonement. But the two together are what complete the atonement. And both are necessary for us. So the whole life of Christ on earth, is this life of constant, flawless obedience to God for his people. So Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. He was made in the likeness of man and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The servant, obedient in the whole of his life to death itself. So the entire span of his life is an obedience, it's a service rendered to God. And so he who was God took on him the form of a servant in the likeness of sinful flesh to identify with his people and became obedient to death. That is the service that Christ rendered. This full obedience to the law of God is obedient to God. Then secondly, who this obedience is rendered for? And again, I know we know the answer to this. We could simply answer it, but just try and Uh, Fill it out a little bit. He is obedient, of course, for his people. That is to say, he is obedient for you and for me. He is their substitute, our substitute. And so the obedience that he offers is in place of these people whom he is substituting for. For them and for no one else. So he is a substitute for his people. And so the obedience he renders is confined to those 
he is substituting for. And therefore, in the scheme of things, the atonement that he is providing is for those for whom he substitutes and those for whom he obeys. Christ then stands for us. Christ places himself under the law for us. He renders through his life that perfect flawless obedience for us. And all that we see then of what he does, he does to accomplish our atonement. And this is how he does it. This is how he accomplishes the atonement. By obeying God. That's not trying to sound trite or minimise it far from it. But in the fullest possible way that that can be meant. He accomplished the atonement by obeying God. That is the central and entire means by which Christ accomplished the atonement. And he does it for all of his precious and beloved people. He does it for us. So these two points, I think, are reasonably are well enough understood. <coughs> and we include them for completeness. It is, for God, it is to God and for us. But if we say that he is obedient, well, we can helpfully consider a distinction within his obedience with these two terms that are used, his active obedience, his passive obedience. And hence we come thirdly to what is meant by his active obedience. What is meant by his active obedience? What is the active obedience of Christ? Well, like any obeying, any obedience, it must relate to some demand that has been laid upon the person to obey. It relates to a law. And so it relates to the law of God. All of the obedience of Christ relates to the law of God. And we read there in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 45 tells us that the last Adam was made a quickening, that is a life-giving spirit. You see, by the obedience of Christ, he is much more than the first Adam. Adam was living. Christ is life-giving. How is it that Adam could lose us our life. But Christ can give us our life. Well, it is by his obedience to the law of God. By Adam's disobedience we lost that original righteousness. And by Christ's obedience it is restored wholly. Now you think of the law the law has both demands that it makes. The law says, this is what you must do. And the law has penalties. This is what is required and what will happen if you do not do the law. Demands and penalties. 
You know that's the way every law works. Well, broadly speaking then, when we are thinking and talking and you hear others talk of the active obedience of Christ, we are talking about Jesus' fulfilling of the demands of the law. That side of it. That's his active obedience, his fulfilling the demands of the law. And when we talk about his passive obedience, we are talking about him meeting the penalties of the law. They're both rendered obedience because they're all part of his relating to the law of God for us. And the law requires its demands to be met and its penalties to be paid. Christ for us as our substitute says, I will do that. And so his meeting the demands of the law, we say that's his act of obedience. His meeting the penalties of the law, therein lies his passive obedience. But this is, of course, rendered to God in relation to the law. All of the work of Christ then relates to the law of God. Both of these sides count as obedience, both as enduring the penalties and as fulfilling the demands. But they have these different aspects. The law then in this first aspect makes demands. The demand that Adam, of course, failed to keep for us. But Christ, in meeting that same demand, also as a representative of his people failed not to meet the demands of God's law. He was fully committed to rendering a complete obedience to the full spectrum of the demands of the holy law of God. Nothing that the law of God required did he forget to perform or omit or transgress outright against, against all that was included under all of the Ten Commandments and all that is summarily included within the commandments, all was met by him. All was, was dealt with by him and offered up to God by him as the sacrifice of his whole life on earth, meeting the demands of the law. Now, in this way we say his active obedience did not finish and then his passive obedience began when he started on the cross. Even upon the cross, his active obedience was required. He still had to obey the law. Until he gave up the ghost, he was required the whole of his life to be actively obeying God's law. Never was he released from the demands of it until he parted soul from body. So his whole life was an active, conscious obedience to meet the demands of the law for his people. And so there was no time when Christ was not rendering obedience to the demands of God's law and doing it for us. Within the womb even. In his infancy, in his childhood, in his youth, in his adulthood, he was made under the law. 
It was not something that happened to him at some later point in his earthly experience that he was made under the law. It was not something that he entered into as he took up, for example, maybe his baptism that he was made under the law. It was a condition of his incarnation that he was made under the law. It is how he was made in our nature. And it was a great part of his humiliation to be made under the law as himself the lawgiver. And is given in our catechism as one of the marks of the humiliation of Christ. He was made under the law. But that obedience was offered up to God in your place, Christian. It was done, all of that obeying was done for you. (coughs) He had no need of it for himself. And so full was his obedience and beyond contradiction that he could demand of his enemies, which one of you convinceth me of sin? So manifest was his obedience to the law that even by the time of his trial, Both Herod and Pilate time and again declared him to be innocent. He was keeping the law in all its demands and so weaving a robe of righteousness for his people. And indeed, what would the witness of Pilate be? Of itself nothing, but the witness of God This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. That is, he has been pleasing me, and he is pleasing me by his obedience. He is a beloved Son to me. That is, he is a loyal, faithful, reliable Son. He is utterly devoted to pleasing his father, and so he ever does his father's will. And this active obedience of Christ was severely and repeatedly tried upon the earth. It was tried in his temptations, but again, it was an active obedience that was tried again in the Garden of Gethsemane when the cup was handed to him. Not my will, but thine be done. He is placing himself under the law to do the Father's will. I take delight. And yet his obedience held fast and not one smirched stain of sin marked his perfect righteousness. Now we believe, just as an aside if you like, it was impossible for Christ to sin. Because he's a divine person and God cannot sin. But he still had to work out an obedience for his people in the teeth of the pressures and temptations and trials that he endured. So then the Saviour takes on himself these obligations of the covenant That to live, we must produce perfect righteousness. How else can we live? 
We can only live by righteousness. And he undertakes to provide that for us. And by his obedience then he merits, we say, eternal life. Christ merited eternal life by his obedience. But he did it for his people. That is the promise, isn't it, for the keeping of the law. Do this and live. And he does it. And we live. By his obedience we live. By his act of obedience. Christ gifts to us this gift of righteousness. By which we are justified before God. And live in his presence. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. For he hath made him to be sin for us. Who knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God. In him. Well, fourthly, what is meant by his passive obedience? We come now to the other side of the law. Remember, we said there are two sides to the law the law makes demands, and the law requires penalties for its break. Christ broke no law. We've just seen how he actively obeyed it perfectly, but he is standing for us. And he must fulfill this side of the law as well. We have looked at the demands and the obedience that Christ offered in relation to the demands of the law. But that was not enough. There has to be also an obedience even to the curse side of the law. An obedience to the suffering side of the law. The penalty demanded against us. And again he rises up of his own accord as it were and says I will take it. I represent these people. And he is willing to obey all the demands of the law. Even this cursed side of it. For the sake of his own. And this is what is known as the passive obedience of Christ. Now, there are negative connotations with that term. It is not Universally liked by any means, but it is widely used and now it is sort of an accepted way of describing it. It's not a biblical term. Many terms we use in doctrine are not directly lifted from scripture. But we must endeavour to understand it properly and use it carefully then because of this. And maybe even ourselves, the passive obedience, something there leaves a bit uneasy at the thought. As we have said already, Christ is active throughout even to the point of death. And so talking about the passive obedience of Christ is not saying his activity has ended and he's now a mere passenger, a bystander or a spectator. It is rather, as it were, think of his active obedience continuing, but added to that, there is another layer, another level to his obedience that he is experiencing and accomplishing. And so this is a way of distinguishing from the act of obedience. And it recognises this language of passive obedience. That the punishment or the penalty of the law is something that is done to Christ. And in that regard, we say he is passively obeying the law. He is not punishing himself not reflexive. He is not both punishing and being punished. 
And so Jesus takes to himself the penal obligations that fall against us because of our breaking of the law. Christ takes that, takes our place in order to meet and to pay our debt against the holy law of God. And so all the sufferings that he endured, that we are privy to by the expositions of the Gospels and the Messianic Psalms and the the great prophecy of the Old Testament, the sufferings that he endured described in the Gospels of the cross, they were not just something that happened in the natural course of events. It was not just the way life was in those awful days of the past. It was not some terrible mistake or misunderstanding. And it was not merely some great example for us to admire. The sufferings of Christ were the imposition of the judicial sentence of God's holy law against him as the representative of his people. They were judicially imposed upon him by God And justly so, because he stood there not in his own person, but as our representative. And the sufferings of Christ really and truly paid the price for our sins. His act of obedience provides the righteousness by which we might live. But only his passive obedience, submitting himself to the curse for us, could provide the propitiation that would release us from the bondage of sin and the damnation of hell. And so the God-man fully bore the punishment His humanity, we can say, enabled his passive obedience or his sufferings. His humanity enabled his sufferings. His deity ennobled his sufferings. It gave to them the worth and the value of infinite recompense. And so the Saviour could say, with full conviction, It is finished. It stands now completed forever. And so the ending of the sufferings of Christ as he dismissed his spirit marked for us the great completion of his obedience for us. It is the end point both of his passive and of his active obedience for us. It is the accomplishment of the atonement for us. The evidence of the success of his obedience is that his sufferings have come to an end. And God has nothing else to require of him. And the law is silenced. And God's wrath is exalted. And no penalty is left. Why? Because there is now therefore no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. He has done it all in his obedience. And that is the nature of the atonement that he has provided as our substitute. May he bless his word. Let us pray.
O our great and glorious God, how we thank thee for such a salvation that Christ has rendered for us, such a fullness of righteousness, such a, an accomplishment, uh, such, O Lord, an enduring of the penalty, such a meeting of the demands. And we could never, never do any of it. Not in this life, not in hell. We couldn't meet the righteousness of that law. And so we thank thee again for our representative, for our substitute, and for the atonement that he has rendered to thee and the atonement that is completed for us. Take away our sins, Lord, in the name of Christ. Amen.